everybody. Welcome to Go Bold. My name is Jody Atariwala, and I'm your host. And today I'm very happy to have on the show Major Brett Parker, who is a Royal Canadian Air Force fighter pilot. He's flown the CF-18 Hornet, and uh, he is also currently the boss of the Snowbirds Air Demonstration Team for 2022. Um, So, Brett, I'm very happy to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for the uh, thanks for the shout out there, uh, Joe. And it's uh, it's great to join you tonight, and hopefully have a, a nice, cool discussion about things. Yeah, I'm totally looking forward to it. So, uh, as I do with all of my guests, Brett, I I ask them what made you join the military and what made you pick the branch that you did. Uh, well, my my desire to be in the military goes back to back my you know my childhood um, days, uh, I, I pretty much was drawn to air shows. I loved going to air shows, um, uh, mainly like obviously jets, uh, military jets, um, and the snowbirds were probably my, my two biggest things that I'd always want to go to air shows for. Um, even then, you know, Top Gun came out, right. And that was 1986. That certainly didn't, uh, prevent things as well to kind of, uh, you know, elite, uh, elevate the uh you know the desire to want to go but uh yeah so it started when i was a kid um to want to do what uh, what i'm doing now i'm fortunate to be doing now so um and uh yeah obviously in order to do what i'm doing right now i have to join the air force so that's why i chose the rcaf awesome and what route did you take to get into the uh, canadian armed forces and specifically the air force um (laughs) Uh, a quite of an a quite an interesting route actually that you asked that. Um, I originally actually applied to the military after high school, um, okay. and uh, but at the time I actually I wasn't selected for pilot. I was selected for navigator, um, oh. but at the time it was uh, you know kind of looked at as a uh, um, you know well you're going to go to university so it's oh well then you're going to be paid to go to university so it's oh well okay um, why not give it a try. So I did, I actually went to Royal Military College in Kingston, Ontario for uh, two and a half years. Um, but then I, I had found that I, you know, my, I wanted to be a pilot. And at that time, the, uh, I wanted to retest for pilot. I'd always just wanted to do a pilot job. But at the time there was the FRP, the force reduction plan going on. So we're talking like back in the early nineties. I know I'm dating myself. I'm 25 <laughs> years old. I'm sure. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but anyway, uh, so I ended up actually leaving the military. So I decided to leave, uh, went back home uh, to Edmonton. And then okay. I, I was, I was getting my degree at the uh, university of Alberta uh, with a bachelor of science. And I just happened to stop by them, the recruiting office in my third year. And I spoke to, the senior officer there. And, uh, I said, you know, I've always wanted to be a pilot in the military and I tested way back when, and he was kind of like, well, what's your story? And I gave him my spiel. Mm-hmm. And then uh, he said, I'll tell you what, you know, finish your university degree, um, go get your private pilot's license and I'll send you back to air crew selection. So I did that. By the time I finished my fourth year, I had my private pilot's license. I got my degree and they sent me back to air crew selection and, here I am. <laughs> so when you say, what was my career path to this? It's a little bit more of a over the hills and through the woods to get here, but here I am. Good for you. Good for you. Well, that shows, uh, shows commitment. It shows hustle and man, uh, to go through uh, pilot training while also in university, like there's expense, there's time. Good for you. That's awesome, Brent. 
Yeah. When I go and do, uh, when I go and do, you know, obviously the job that I'm currently doing, um, we do lots of school visits or we try to notwithstanding the whole COVID thing. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, I, I just use my, my story as perseverance. So that's, right. that's another word. That's my story. I persevered. So Good for you. Um, it may sound a little bit cliche, but it is technically true. It's like some people have the straight path and they just, they just go, the, you know, off they go and they make everything happen and others got to kind of work their way there. And I'm, I'm that guy <laughs> that's worked their way there. Well, <clears throat> hey, it, maybe, maybe it makes the reward just that little bit more sweet, you know? Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. Good for you. Good for you. Well, uh, so tell me about, you obviously get uh, selected then for pilot training in, in the Air Force. And uh, tell me the next step, because I'd love to hear about some of the milestones of training, because as a pilot and, you know, a, a person that has a goal, I would love to hear some of those milestones of like, man, this is the first time I got in a jet or, you know, military aircraft or, you know, any of those memories. Yeah, I mean, it's it's changed somewhat uh, since I went through. I know I'm only 25, but it's been a few years since I went through the pilot training. Just kidding. It might be, <laughs> be almost double that. I'm dating, I'm dating myself on live podcasts. Is that, is that allowed? Just kidding. Go ahead, man. Uh, You're joining the club here. So <laughs> there we go. <laughs> um, okay, so back, you know, back when when I was going through pilot training, um, we had the slings be so um, there's some basic military training stuff that you'll do like land survival, sea survival, you know, basic courses and stuff. But then your, you know, your first real true step to becoming a pilot is uh, basic flying BFT, basic flying training in Portage, um, okay. just outside of Winnipeg. Mm -hmm. At the time I did it on the Slingsby, but now they have the Grobe. Um, and, uh, that's like a pilot selection. That's kind of like your initial pilot selection and it's about 30 hours long, but it's basically a private pilots, private, kind of like a private pilot's license type thing. You know, you'll learn traffic sequences and go out to the area and do a little bit of aerobatics and slow flight and come back and do traffic patterns and stuff like that. But it's technically supposed to be more of an assessment, right? And they kind of give you some things to learn and then they ideally kind of step back and just see how well you've learned it and make that assessment from there. Okay. And then uh, once that's done, like obviously uh, with successful completion from there, you would go to what is now known as phase three. It used to be phase two, um, but it's called phase three now with, uh, with the Harvard. So the Harvard, um, which is a moose jaw. Okay. It's got, you know, it's got a turbo prop. Um, so, you know, as someone joining the military, if you've, you know, maybe been flying Cessnas or something like that, I mean, stepping into a turbo prop with retractable gear and ejection seats and all that kind of stuff like it, it, you know, the military has always prided itself that we have a, a certain way of doing things. And of course the learning curve, I mean, is it a curve or is it more of a slope depending <laughs> on whether you call it a, a curve or not, but right. it does, you know, start to go, you know, fairly uh, rapidly up when it comes to, you know, aptitude and evaluating someone's ability to become a military pilot. So, um, so yeah, so you step into the Harbor too, and um, it's got, you know, performance and all that kind of stuff. It's got, you know, a glass cockpit or mostly glass cockpit. Um, so yeah, so you, you, you very quickly uh, uh, step into something pretty modern um, to kind of see if you've got the next stage of uh, what it takes to become a military pilot. Mm -hmm. Um, and then from the Harvard two, depending on where you, uh, where you stream, that's usually where you stream into the different, uh, branches. So either be Hilo community, multi or fighters. Okay. Um, and then if you go fighters, you go to the Hawk, 
uh, helos, you go back to Portage, eventually back onto the Jet Ranger slash the, well, I guess what was, was the Griffin, but it's the, what are we calling it now? The, what's the blue one called? Oh, yeah, the Outlaw. The outlaw, the outlaw that's it. yeah the outlaw yeah. or yeah. or the or the king air for multi-engines so right um i was fortunate enough to go jets uh which is obviously what i wanted to do and then um my first posting so that i went jets uh so i went on to the hawk got my so i got my air force wings on the hawk um <clears throat> again it's just more of the same mm-hmm. uh, difference obviously between the harvard 2 and the hawk is mainly speed and that's, that's usually that next level of assessment. It's like, okay, this person seems to be able to hack it. Well, now let's speed it up twice as fast and see if they can stay ahead of the airplane. And then obviously you follow on from that, the Hornet goes that much faster. And that's just part of the development piece. Um, got my wings on the Hawk. And then I ended up actually going back to uh, Moose Jaw to become a, a first tour Hawk instructor. So then I ended up being one of the first 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 hawk instructors as a pipeline guy that's interesting like because you you've just trained on the hawk so i guess really you know it's it's as fresh as it could be to now go ahead and try to um to instruct others because you know yeah what it's I, like. on the yeah, other i was just i was fortunate to be in the right place at the right time i originally i was fragged to go and fly the harvard um so they did have um we call them like first tour instructors but um the commandant at the schools, um, there was a slot that opened up at 419, which of course is our fighter lead in training for the Hornet. And he said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll send you to 419. So at least you have an idea of what you'll be teaching for. So when you go back to Moose Jaw, you at least have some credibility when you say, oh, by the way, this is what 419 is going to get you to do it. So when I tell you as a Moose Jaw instructor, this is what 419 wants, wants you to do. Cause I've just done it right. kind of a little bit of that credibility, I suppose. But um, yeah, so I, I really enjoyed, um, I've always enjoyed instruction. Um, so in Moose Jaw, I, I was able to um, get an A2 category out of it and work some, worked with some amazing people, both in standards um, and on the dragon flight. And then um yeah, so that's how I, that was my first tour, and then do you want me to go through timeline on my on my flying? Or? Uh, yeah, a, a little bit, but uh, actually, I want to pull at a thread here, and that is, um, what do you think makes a good instructor? And it doesn't matter what stage per se, but um, but just kind of in in a general sense, what makes a good uh, pilot instructor? Um, I think there's a few qualities that are there. Um, like we, when it comes to being a good instructor, you, you, you first have to be able to, you know, we use the, we use like the, you know, the qualities and, and um, tools of instruction, right? And one of the things is uh, even when I, I, you know, I've developed instructors in the past working in standards and, you know, we always say, uh, you know, the law of primacy, for example, like the first time you do something ideally should be perfect, right? You should be, if I'm going to show you something like, okay, follow me through, watch what I do. And mm-hmm. hopefully I should be able to do this perfectly. Mm-hmm. So that when you go, okay, I've just seen the perfect demo. Um, I'm going to try and replicate what I was just shown. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's very difficult to do to say everyone flies a level five. Um, so, you know, you say, what, what are some qualities? I think instructor needs to be a very capable pilot from a 
from just a, an abilities point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes that's the biggest challenge um, in Moose Jaw, for example, because you'll spend a lot of your time instructing. So when you're not flying, you're not actually continuing to, you know, you know, stay on top of your own skills and your right. Own abilities. Right. And, and you can sometimes get caught. Um, and that's what I usually found when I was teaching instructors or evaluating instructors was that a lot of times the instructional piece was there, but it was the proficiency on the airplane that was sometimes lacking because you're just not physically flying the airplane. Right. So right. the ability to operate an airplane and have those, those abilities, you know, even at times where you may not be touching the airplane very often, I think is important. Mm-hmm. Um, I think patience is a, definitely a very, very important, you know, the old patience is a virtue. <laughs> right. right. Um, um, yeah. I personally, I, I think the instructional piece is a lot, a lot of it comes down to attitude. And then mm-hmm. if you have a positive attitude and what you are trying to get accomplished with, you know, the person you're working with, it's, it's actually a very, I would say it's actually a very easy, but m- most importantly, it's a very rewarding um, thing to have to be able to do is to see someone effectively show up there with arguably the same desires and career paths that you want to do. And you're helping them figure it out. Um, mm-hmm. um, and that was the hardest part of being an instructor too, is that sometimes you had to make those difficult decisions on, you kind of go, you know, we have a standard, there's a standard that we need to meet. We need to still be able to meet training requirements within a certain amount of time. Mm-hmm. And um, sometimes you have to make that call or you kind of go, I'm, I'm sorry, but it's not working out for you. Um, and, yeah. and, and, and it's unfortunate, but it, it, it has, it does happen from time mm-hmm. to time where people get to that stage and then unfortunately don't make it all the way through. Yeah, it must be devastating for a person that has that goal to maybe not reach that that level that's required. But the flip side of it is maybe that's also doing them a favor because you, you know, and also the rest of the Air Force a favor in the sense that you don't want to push somebody through just because you need to push them through, right? They have to be able to be capable. But if particularly when talking, well, anything that gets off the ground is, you know, it's, it's, it's important to know uh, what you're doing, but particularly I would imagine in high, uh, high performance aircraft, like a fighter jet, um, you better know what you're doing and and be capable. Yeah, absolutely. Um, But then ultimately that's, you know, it comes back to that instructional piece where the ones where you obviously, where I feel like you've done your, as much of the as much as your job as an instructor is when you can, you land from a poor trip and the student knows it was a poor trip. Mm-hmm. Right. And they self-assess that and they come to that realization that, you know what, this isn't working out for me. This isn't what's happening. And versus, you know, like you're just being mean to me and you don't understand. And I was like, no, Hey, like, go ahead. You tell me what happened today. And that was poor. That was poor. That was poor. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And so what do you think would be the impact from that? Well, I don't think I deserve to pass. Exactly. Okay. Right. 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 They, they actually end up having that as their uh, rationalization from the trip. And then you kind of go, good. Um, maybe they have time left in order to fix it. And maybe mm-hmm. they don't. But at least they've been able to self-assess that problem um, on their own. And it doesn't feel like, oh, I just got pushed off the deep end by someone who doesn't like me. Right. I, I've right. done everything in my power everything that I have, all the tools that I have as a pilot and as a person or whatever, you tell me I'm, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying, 
but I, I can't do it for you. You still have to be able to do something competently and safely. And, um, and obviously safety is probably the most important part of it. If you can't do it safely, you won't pass. I guarantee you that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's for safety of themselves and, and the people they're flying with. Yeah, absolutely. Not for sure. Yeah. Everybody, everybody. Yeah. Um, so tell me, we don't have to go into like super uh, deep detail, but tell me because you're flying a turboprop and then you go into the jet with the Hawk. Um, I would imagine the first time you spool up a jet, you know, there are simulators and everything else, but it's got to be a wonderful memory. Yeah. I it's um, to be honest, I, I, I had the fortunate pleasure of doing a few um, trips prior to going to Moose Jaw. Oh, right. I'd, I'd been in the back of an F-18 a couple of times. So I got a couple of backseat rides and F-18s um, just as, you know, you know, on job training to kind of see what a fighter pilot's job is all about. Um, I worked in Winnipeg at Central Flying School at the time. They had a tutor jet there. Um, so I, I'd been in, I'd, I'd been fortunate enough to be, and actually I also had some flights in the F-5 as well. That was in Winnipeg. Oh, so, that would have been cool. Yeah, that was very cool. Um, yeah. So I, I was fortunate from where I was working at the time to have been exposed and had the opportunity to get exposed to some jets. So the first time I was, I mean, Mirana was great sitting and being able to actually sit in the front because right. all <laughs> I was sitting in the back or yeah. on the side, I wasn't actually flying. I was just basically a passenger and looking at whoever I was flying with going, this is awesome. But yeah, like, which, which button are you looking at right now? Because there's <laughs> a million of them. Right. Um, but, you know, I don't necessarily remember the exact, you know, day or that first day that I, you know, I, I sat in, in the Hawk to, to sure. take my first jet ride, if you will. Yeah, um, oh, fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, me- memories from that kind of thing is uh, like, I remember um, I had the fortunate pleasure to fly my brother. Oh, uh, no kidding. In, in the jet. Yeah. Um, cool. The wing commander at the time, he was very uh, open to um, opportunities to, you know, other um, service personnel. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we basically said that, that um, emergency services personnel, um, mm-hmm. first, first responders, mm-hmm qualified for that and so i asked him i said well my, my brother is a police officer does he qualify and he's like absolutely it's like okay awesome. so i was able to yeah i was able to take him for a flight which he said was just amazing and uh so I, you know i remember that yeah um as a you know as a pretty special opportunity that was made available by um by the command team at the time and um and uh, yeah, I did the I did the standard sibling thing though. I got I, I made I flew hard enough to make sure that he got sick and respected the <laughs> and respected the, For you. the job that I was doing. He's kind of like, oh my god! I was like, yep, yep, yep. Here's more. Here's some more G. Here's some more G. Okay, okay. He's got sick, so he's gonna have a little bit of respect for me. You know, a little bit of that. Right. Uh, he's an older brother right so i always lost, had to. i always lost all the fights so it would have been rude for me not to do that exactly um, just because but yeah. i love it i love it that's awesome <laughs> you know it, i i mentioned to you before we started this chat that uh i had the opportunity to go up in an f-18 and um and you know the pilot that i flew with but uh i that was the biggest fear. I didn't want to come back with an air sickness bag full, you know, and, uh, and thankfully I didn't, but, uh, I think, uh, I think maybe Dan was, uh, was maybe kind to me. Oh, I never know. But you know what? I, I actually, um, I, I was sick and in the tutor, my second flight, 
And it took me about four flights after that to kind of get over the air sickness piece. And, you know, obviously in my, my, well, probably not so much as in the job as the boss, because I'm at the front, there's not really a whole lot to look at, but in my previous tenure on the snowbirds, I was a number five, a two, a three and a seven. So I have had quite a few passengers with me and, you know, that's always the same thing, right? They're always worried about, are we going to get sick? Am I going to get sick? And it's like, well, let's put it in perspective. Human beings are not creatures of the air. We are yes, right. something we're not used to. Right. Your brain is going to start freaking out when you get exposed, when it gets exposed to something it's not used to. And the right. first thing it's going to do is it's going to start blaming whatever you ate. So it's natural. That's what it does. That's <laughs> right. That's yeah. I'll tell you is that that's the first thing is you'll feel nauseous because your brain says, okay, I don't feel well. So it must be something that I ate. So I'm going to empty my contents out of my stomach. <laughs> Right. And that's why like the first feeling after you've been sick in the jet is you kind of go, Oh, I actually feel pretty good. Yeah. Okay. Cause the brain's like, Oh, apparently it wasn't what I ate. Right. Oh crap. But then, you know, but the ride's still going. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> anyway, so. Well, it's, it's so funny that the, uh, before my flight, I was actually chatting with an A-10 pilot who, mm. who was, uh, at the same site that I was. And what a wonderful guy. He was just like, he was like, Oh, you know, you must be excited. You know, what a great opportunity. And I was like, yeah, I totally am. I said, I just don't want to get sick in the jet. And he goes, well, you know, about straining maneuvers and everything. And, and I'm like, yep. Uh, you know, tighten up your lower extremities, you know, when tighten your, your abdomen, if you can. And he goes, yep. He goes, you know, one thing that I'll suggest to you though, is try to keep your arms relaxed. He goes, a lot of people make the mistake of also tensing up their, you know, their, their arms and stuff. He goes, just put them on the rails and try to keep, keep them relaxed because you don't really want to tense up your upper body. You just want to really kind of focus on your lower body. And I don't know if that was the thing, the, the trick that helped me, but I just remember that. And it was kind because he didn't have to tell me any of that stuff. So that's cool. Yeah. 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 I, I will never forget that. So I'll never forget that whole day. It was super cool, you know, but uh, yeah, I mean, when we, I've done, uh, well, I've done at least two centrifuge se uh, sessions, if you will, one in Canada and one in the UK. And uh, they never tell you about, you know, doing anything with your upper extremity when it comes to, you know, G, um, G restraint. So right. Makes, makes sense, right? It's all yeah. about keeping the blood up in your upper extremity and probably keeping your muscles relaxed will allow actually more blood to stay within the upper extremities a little, right. maybe that hair a bit longer, but yeah, yeah. that's cool. That's good. Great yeah. advice. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it worked for me anyway. So, uh, but like I said, it could have been uh, Dan taking it easy on me too, but um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so tell me now about going from, uh, from your instructing days in, in the Hawk over to the CF 18, because now that's you're, you're now getting to, to do what your, your goal was. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, the F 18 is an awesome machine. Um, you know, uh, and stepping up into it from the Hawk. I mean, it's, it's quite a bit of a different animal to be honest. I mean, two engines after burning 32,000 pounds of thrust, um, versus a Hawk that's like five, um, you know, and then, and then, but then you throw in all of the capabilities of the airplane, what you can do with it. And you just build this appreciation for, you know, this, this piece of equipment that's been designed. Um, yeah, there's just, there's just so many cool things you can do with the airplane now. And obviously technology has come a long way to enhance that. And, um, yeah, what a, what a fun machine, like, uh, 
it's a point and shoot thing. As I told you earlier on before the podcast started, you know, everyone always, oh, how is, what's the F-18 like to fly? And it's like, oh, the F-18 actually is, it's pretty, it's very easy to fly. It's the operating of it, you know, as a, as a fighter pilot, that's where you uh, earn your bread and butter. Right. You know? um, right. Yeah. Systems management, right? That's exactly what it is. Cause you just, you've got, you don't have enough displays in order to show every sensor that you have going on. And so a lot of times it's, you know, depending on the mission you're doing, it's going to be knowing what to have up when and where you're looking and what to negotiate at a different time, uh, or depending on the sequence, um, that's where you, that's literally where you earn your, your keep as a, as a pilot in that, in that regard. Um, right. On. But, you know, you also get to do the Top Gun stuff and do some like close uh, combat and BFM and ACM and all that kind of stuff, just like, you know, Top Gun stuff is so, so that's also good fun as well. Absolutely. Hey everybody, I'd like to take a quick minute to thank our sponsor, Cubic Mission and Performance Solutions. Cubic plays such an important role in training our allied warfighters. So since inventing air combat maneuvering instrumentation, or ACMI, in the early 1970s, Cubic continues to lead the industry as the world's foremost provider of air combat training systems. So air crews from the United States and allied partners they rely on cubic systems to prepare for combat missions more effectively and with less risk. So I encourage you to take a look at their website. Um, they're an amazing company and they are a wonderful partner to this podcast. Please visit them at cubic.com. Thanks everybody. Um, now let's get back to our show. You mentioned about Top Gun. Is flying fighter jets anything like Top Gun? I, I think I know the answer. Uh, yes and no. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. Uh, yes. Yes. Sort of. Um, but maybe a bit over glamorized uh, in, in, in some spots, but uh, you, you can do a lot of the things that you would see in Top Gun, but I wouldn't say that's the uh, everyday, you know, job that you would be expected to do with the airplane. If you know what I mean? Yeah. I don't think a lot of people see the simulator or people don't think about the simulator time or maybe whatever admin duty you might have beyond flying. They never show that in movies. <laughs> no, they don't. Um, that's what I mean. That's probably the, that's always the hard balance with the, with the um, being on the gun squadron is, uh, you know, the one hour of your day is awesome when you get to strap the jet on and just go and be be effectively you know a fighter pilot and it doesn't matter what what the profile is it's just fun to go flying and take the jet flying it's the other 11 hours of your day that's you know where you get you know you get secondary duties and all that kind of stuff that in the squadron still needs to run right so right unfortunately yeah. it's not just strapping a jet on and then you just go home and then that's your day you know there's <laughs> lots of other things that happen that need to happen in order to make things work properly so so there's no white scarf brett Oh, there might be a white scarf, but you know, probably by the end of the day, it's probably a different shade of white that's been, <laughs> you know, dangling behind you while you're running between whatever other duties you got going on. So, right, right. <laughs> well, so you mentioned uh, different profiles, um, and you mentioned how the CF-18 can can do it all. Um, was there any particular uh, um, aspect of of um being a fighter pilot that you like more like were you an air to air guy or air to ground or um to be honest i not to sound cliche but i i liked it all um i mean the best part about the hornet was has always been that it's it was never the best fighter 
for, you know, it was never like the best air to air. It was never the best air to ground, but Mm -hmm. it could do both very, very well. Right. And you know what I mean? So it was, it's above average in just about everything that it does. And so you kind of go, is that not like the best thing to be able to do from a robust, you know, like, what do we need to do today? And then, and you go from air to air to air to air to ground from a push of a button. Right. And it, and it just does it. And so it's just, it's just one of those airplanes where there's just so much capability that you could do. Um, mm-hmm. I enjoyed it all. I, I, you know, obviously air to air is, is fun, um, using the radar and doing all those sequences and then getting into, you know, close quarter fighting and stuff like that. That's always good fun. And then, but then, you know, transitioning into doing like close air support and, uh, you know, using targeting pods and stuff like that was also good fun. Right. And that's also, you know, a potential part of the job. So, mm-hmm. uh, I really, I really in, enjoyed it all to be honest um awesome uh, well so what was it like after you went from the operational training unit uh I believe that's 410 squadron yeah. uh did you have a particular uh wish i don't want to say preference but wish of which base you wanted to go to cold lake or baggettville and did you have a particular squadron that you were kind of keen on um, at the time, the squadrons were being amalgamated anyways. So uh, 409 was being birthed from like 441 and 416 in, in um, Cold Lake. Okay. And, uh, and then obviously there was 425 and 433 and it became 425 only for a period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm from Edmonton. So obviously uh, Cold Lake would have been a preferred place for me, notwithstanding my wife's from the East Coast. Um, but then, you know, she... Uh, we, she was mil- in the military uh, for a period of time, but um, her job uh, was as a nurse and um, she, I mean, she still is a nurse, but uh, you know, part of the decision to, to go with um, Cold Lake as well, where all the, their, their career uh, hindrances of going um, out to, out to Quebec, because she would have had to do all the extra language profiles and then all the extra recalls to rehack and get everything sorted. And we just kind of went, well, she could start working right now in Alberta or go through all the hoops to get working in Quebec and notwithstanding the family presence and stuff, it was, it was a relatively easy decision, notwithstanding. I mean, if they told me I'd go to 425, we would have done it, but um, 409 and 425 are both open and I was able to get 409. So beautiful, beautiful. So tell me a little bit about your time in 409 squadron. Um, That's I believe the Nighthawks, right? Yeah. Um, now I, I know this is quite a while ago. I mean, we're talking like a decade, but sure. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I really enjoyed my time on the squadron. It's, it's a bit, it's busy. Uh, you know, like, as you said, or we discussed before, it's, uh, you know, kind of go one out of your day is flying a jet and the other, you know, 10 to 11 is, um, everything else that needs to go and needs to happen. But, you know, when I, when I arrived on squadron, um, less than a month later, I was out in uh, rim pack, uh, oh, cool. a big exercise out in Hawaii. Yeah. My very first trip on squadron was dissimilar air combat training against an F-15 out in Hawaii. And, Sweet. uh, yeah. And it was pretty, you know, pretty eye-opening because, uh, we ended up doing effectively like a four, it was like four before, but effectively what we did is, uh, you know, you've got your, your lead to four ship of the Eagles and we had our lead to four ship of the Hornets. And we effectively took, you know, each lead would take the junior wingman of the four 
okay. we would go to a quadrant of airspace and we'd go and do like some um, basic form, uh, basic fighting maneuvers. So BFM to each other. And we look at, you know, profiles and that kind of thing. And so I, I'm, of course, I'm the, as green as you could possibly have. I mean, I had some hours in my logbook, but as a fighter pilot, I only, I was literally right out of 410. And uh, so I ended up getting the lead of the four plane of F-15 guys, who is a, brigadier general uh but he was a delta airlines so he was a guard like a guard sure guard guy, right. if you know, but a b gen with five thousand hours on the f-15 and um <laughs> a delta airlines reserve pilot and uh anyway so off we go and i kind of just resort to my 410 stuff and he just <laughs> kicked the crap out of me the entire time and and, uh, but, you know, it was just, it was pretty cool. You know, you get down to the debrief and, you know, it's uh rank aside. He, we, we sat down and we pulled the tapes and he's showing me, he's showing me like profiles of, of, of weapons we don't even have. And I was just kind of mind blown about, wow, you're still shooting me there. You're still shooting me there. How is that possible? I'm like pretty much behind you and you're still shooting me. And, uh, you know, so it was a really good, like uh, learning experience from that standpoint. Um, yeah. But also, uh, I mean, man like my first week on squadron and I'm, I'm i'm up against a different airplane with this this individual who's got amazing amount of experience so yeah it was just it was very cool to be able to take part in that and you know as i was one of the first um bombs i dropped was on uh we were sinking a couple of the ships out there awesome. um they were, they were getting rid of so i was part of that to drop a one of our guided munitions into the into the ship as it was eventually being sunk and so yeah, I mean, lots of amazing memories from from four oh nine. Was that? Uh, go ahead. I'm wondering, was it a GBU twelve that you dropped, or? Uh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's interesting. You know, it's. I was talking with a few other pilots about putting stress on jets, and um, <clears throat> one of my other guests was a uh, colonel and wing commander uh, flying A tens. And he's like, yeah, you know, we'd put, we'd put G's on the jet, obviously, and definitely in casts in close air support. But he said, you know, everything kind of changed once you put uh, precision guided munitions on, because now you don't really need to do um, dives. <laughs> and, and uh, when you're releasing a bomb, because, you know, you're pretty much in level flight, you find the target with the targeting pod and, uh, and pickle the button and off it goes. And uh yeah, it's pretty amazing. You just uh, like we, I didn't, I didn't really drop too many of them uh, with the Hornet because we didn't really have too many of those uh, guidance packages on, mm -hmm. on on a lot of the weapons at that stage. But mm -hmm. um, we did a lot of uh, a lot of synthetic uh, synthetic drops with the um, with the with the Hawk T two on my exchange. And, you know, the way the airplane builds, we call, I call it the basket, right? And it just basically just got to drive the airplane into the basket and then just let the bomb go. And it just flies itself, you know, off, off it goes and it follows it, everything. And all the canards will move to make sure it's doing everything properly. And it should be pretty darn accurate. <laughs> it goes where you tell it to. Yeah. Wow. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, or you hope it does. Anyways. <laughs> well, it's going to go wherever it's been programmed to go. So. Right. Right. Um, yeah, right. and it's usually it's pretty darn accurate. I mean, you know, as long as it's getting a good signal and it's a good GPS coordinate, it's going to be pretty close. Yeah, yeah, 
right mm -hmm. on. Um, so any other highlights? Uh, well, I'm sure you have many highlights of your 409 uh, squadron days, but I'd love to hear a little bit about maybe flying in the north, because uh, that's just got to be such an austere location and, and just the environment and and what that's like um i don't know if you've ever have had the opportunity to, to do an intercept um in the north but yeah just what what it's like flying there i'd also love to hear about the first time you tanked in a cf-18 ah, yes well so i'm not i'm not unfortunately not to talk too much about like intercepts per se uh, sure. just because of the sensitive nature of them but i have i have gone up to um, up north quite a few times. Um, most of the time we were up there, uh, just obviously training to it, uh, just seeing what it's all about. It's pretty cool um, going up to the bases up there. We have, you know, drive in, drive out. And it's kind of looks a little bit more old school, if you will, from, you know, some of the hangers from the years past. But uh, okay. But yeah, you know, it's literally, um, I, I usually make like family videos every year. And that one year, I, I usually do like a little flying portion of it. And I had the, or the, you know, Indivec slash up North where we would usually go up towards is, and it's kind of like the Hoth system, right. From star Wars is just oh, yeah. this, this blanket of snow and kind of undulating rock and whatnot. And, you know, you're in your little speeder and then that's all you, that's what you do type of thing. But, but yeah, we, um, I spent some time up there. It's pretty cool. Um, both during the summer and in the winter as well. So you get like full days, full day, daylight or full night. Right. So that can oh, be right. quite, a, quite a shock as well. Yeah. Yeah. And so nighttime you've got NVGs and then daytime and also with, with the altitude uh, or sorry, with the latitude that you're at, um, do you have to wear different types of, uh, of flight gear um, as opposed to like what you might be doing in Southern latitudes? Um, yeah. Well, I mean, mo most of the time we'll like, we like even for on the, on the snowbirds, right. It'll depend on the, on the temperatures and stuff like that. If it's extreme cold, we have our, our bunny pants, our extreme weather pants. Um, uh, we'll also have like immersion suits and stuff like that, depending on if we expect to be over water for a prolonged period of time. So we do have, you know, different layers of kit that we'll be carrying with us, with, carrying with us, if uh, depending on the types of climate we're expecting to be exposed to or potentially exposed to. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, um, we would we would carry it all um, as required, and it is <laughs> is what yeah, it is. What yeah, yeah, exactly. You got to wear what you got to wear. Um, wear. Wear exactly. Yep, yep. Um, so you mentioned to me also that during your gun squadron days that you had um that you had flown during op podium uh that was during the olympics that would have been yeah. kind of interesting yeah it was um it was quite a, a build up to it because you know it was going to be a pretty big operation from a from a security posture point of view and uh being the that where cold lake was in relation to vancouver we were going to be the primary unit to be um providing most of the assets towards that um that op so mm. um but lots of great um again learning opportunities from that i mean the guys down in vancouver well guys gals and uh, atc in vancouver are awesome right they just not oh, we have, have f-18s coming in and out all the time and you know stirring up a little bit of noise trouble and just just because we can not that, <laughs> right. uh, not that like a triple seven or seven eight seven isn't probably equally loud as an f-18 is anyways but whatever sure. Right, right. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so we um, 
we did lots of um, lots of workups for it, and uh, and then obviously during the Olympics themselves, um, it was a pretty uh, a pretty cool um, experience to be a part of, uh, just to kind of see you know how things were going, and you know you got kind of live feed even just how the Olympics were going right, and seeing how all of our Canadian athletes were were doing in relation to the Olympics, and you just kind of felt like you're you're a part of the team. Yeah, know? yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, it's got to be very rewarding for sure. Yeah. Um, so you got to tell me about tanking the first time. Oh, yeah. Of- well, actually, I get a chance to tank first time at, at 410 uh, okay. on the Hercules, on the Herc. So most of my tanking was on the Herc. Hmm. Uh, I did tank off KC-10s and KC-135s. Um, and I'm sure you've heard the horror stories from, well, KC-10s, like hitting a nice velvety pill- pillow. Yes. If you, if you, if you damage something on the KC 10, you probably should have your, uh, your, your qualification removed because it's literally a, it's literally a big velvety pillow. Like anything more soft than that. It's fast. The airplane's fast and it's a big velvety pillow and the offload rate is very, very quick. So it's like KC 10. Amazing. Uh, I have heard about the 135 though. KC 135 called the Iron Maiden. It kind of earns its reputation, but again, a lot of that I think is um, is pilot technique and how you engage it. And if you're uh, if you just maybe not too aggressive with your approach angle and stuff like that, it's not too cosmic. But it is kind of weird that they make a design where you got to put two 90 degree turns into the coupling in order to get the fuel to flow. It's a bit odd. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, and then and then of course add on to that, you know, you've got this iron you know, arm that sits down and then the hose is, is, I can't remember, it's what, 12 feet long or something like that. So you gotta, it's a pretty short hose that flops back and forth and you gotta get these two 90 degree turns into it to get the fuel flowing. You're like, Ooh, design this gosh. And then you go say, Oh, KC 10 next. Yay. Um, but I do remember, uh, I do remember, um, probably my most memorable tanking experience was actually on a hurric and, um, it was, it was actually up North. Uh, we were just doing some um, a local sortie, and we happened to have tanker support at the time. Mm-hmm. And my flight lead at the time, he's like, "Well, let's maybe try some low-level tanking." And uh, so we were at I don't know what it was, two thousand or three thousand feet, whatever. I can't remember, but what I do remember though is that the boom or the uh, the the basket was moving probably anywhere from twelve to fourteen feet just wow. moving back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And you're just kind of, uh, and of course it's bumpy too. So you're bumping along and, and this basket's going all over the place. And, and so you're kind of like, I'm going to try and get on this thing. And he's like, <laughs> oh, let's try it. And you're just trying to time it. And oh, no, oh, no. And of course in your brain, you hear about all the horror stories about like wrecking the probe and you don't want to break the probe off, but you also want to get on there because you know, the leads watching you. And anyways, uh, so I did eventually get on there, but boy, oh boy, that was, uh, that was quite an interesting experience. <laughs> wow. Yeah. No. It, and that was obviously because of, uh, air down below turbulence, whatever, I guess. A yeah. Bit well, air turbulence. And then you got like the hurricane that's flying slower. So right. you know, like when we, that's where the, the jets are nicer to tank off of like the Airbus is a nicer tanking platform than the mm-hmm. Hercules only because the Herc flies a little bit slower. So sure. now the Hornet in order to plug in, it's going to have some alpha on the jet. Right. So now you've got alpha on the jet, which is going to disrupt your airflow over the nose, which then puts a little bit of, you know, some swirly uh, vortices on the front. Yep. And not really vortices on the front, but you know what I mean? The airflow over the front mm-hmm. is disrupted. For which sure. then of course will affect the basket. So the right. basket will move a little bit. So 
you know, I have my technique on the her on the when I'm tanking on the hurricane, I kind of like sneak up on it so it doesn't know that I'm there and just kind of go <laughs> and just kind of there I am and show up and it doesn't have enough time to react to my the the bow wave caused by my canopy. I just kind of go, ha ha, there's my I show up. But um any of the awesome. other airplanes that are going fast enough, it it's not affected by that. But for whatever reason, the alpha and when you come in, it it starts to move the basket a lot more on the Hercules. Gotcha. Gotcha. Oh, that's interesting. Um, so before we leave the CF 18 days, I got to ask you, um, it, because I love the story about you flying with the F-15 or flying versus an F-15 mm -hmm. uh, when you first got on the squadron. But I'd love to hear about some of the other aircraft that you've flown and something that just might be memorable to you in terms of like a BFM fighter or whatever you got. Um, like other airplanes I've flown in? Uh, flown so against. Flown, oh, against. flown against, flown against. Yeah, so, yeah. So I've fought against a Viper before as well. So I've fought against an F-16. Okay. Uh, and I've also fought against a Super Hornet uh, as well. Ah, uh -huh, cool. Um, obviously the Eagle. Uh, I think those are the two other ones that were on, that I've done DACT training against was a Viper and a Super Hornet. Okay. Um, yeah. What, what are your thoughts of each of them? Like as, as a F-18, CF-18 pilot, what is your thoughts about going up against a Viper and a Super Hornet? Well, the interesting thing is that the, uh, like everything else, like each airplane has its capabilities, but um, it all depends on what the pilot does with it. For sure. Um, you totally. know, like I, I thought, I didn't think the F-15 would do like a pirouette turn like we do, or you could pretty much pull as much alpha as you want and you just stomp on the rudder and the airplane will just do a, uh, right. you know, a full 180 degree turn. And, and in terms of like fighting, it's all about nose position. And so mm -hmm. even if an airplane turns its nose at you, you have to assume that he, he or she might be shooting at you. So now you have to react to it. Mm -hmm. um, and he did that with an F-15. He did basically did the same thing that we would do with the Hornet. And I was like, I didn't think he could do that. Well, and right. then you also add in the fact that it's got almost twice as much horsepower as we do. So he also can climb away from me if he wants to. Um, so the Viper doesn't have that capability, but it does have a, especially the block 50 ones and like with the bigger engines in them, mm -hmm. uh, they've got a lot of horsepower and they're small, um, and light so they can, you know, they can accelerate in the vertical a lot easier than we can. So it just depends on how you engage that person and what they do with that airplane. Uh, right. the F-16's life is fast. I mean, like they, you know, they can pull nine G, you know, but they're, so their fighting regime is fast. So an F-16, I would usually try and get them slow, Okay. Uh, get them slow. And then once he's slower or slow, slower, mm -hmm. then I can use my, hopefully use my alpha capability in order to continue to, you know, push that fight. Mm -hmm. um, but if he gets the speed on, he can still leave. He can get up way higher than I can and a lot faster than I can. And, um, so again, when you talk about like, you know, how do you tactically engage that kind of thing? It just totally depends as you go into that, into that merge and then, you know, play the picture that, or, you know, fight the picture that you see out the window. Right. Um, right. super Hornet, uh, again, it's, it's not as, it's not as maneuverable or from what I've heard, I've never flown in it, but I don't believe it's as maneuverable as the, as our, as our older Hornets are mm -hmm. um, just because yes, it's got bigger, it's got a obviously bigger wing. I mean, it's another third, almost third size of an airplane, but right. yeah, so it's got bigger engines. It's got a bigger Lex, bigger wing, but all that, 
weight and drag and everything, mm -hmm. I think it actually affects its turn capability quite a bit. Similar to um, like the, uh, to the Hawk actually, um, when we uh, like over in the UK, if ever, if ever we did a little bit of like basic fighting against uh, like a T1 Hawk mm -hmm. and like the T2 Hawk that I flew, if you look at the two variants, you'll see like the T1 Hawk has the short little snub, snub nose on it. And of course right. the T2 one's got the big long nose, which carries all the sensors, but it makes a massive difference to its turning capability with that little shorter stubbier nose. And so the T1 Hawk would actually be a better BFM airplane than the T2. And I find it a very similar comparison between the, you know, what you'd say is the regular Hornet and the super Hornet. Interesting. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Super cool. Um, so, yeah, I was going to say we'll leave the CF-18 now, but I have to ask this a couple of questions before we do. One is... I'm going to reach back way back in my memory bank for all yeah, these. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. well, hopefully hopefully it's a, it's, a, it's a fun exercise for you to bring back some interesting memories, I hope. Um, but one is, what did you like most about it? And what did you like least about it? <sighs> most? Oh, man. Uh, I mean... The airplane itself or just like the job? Like, what do you mean? Uh, like the like, camaraderie was amazing. Like all the guys I worked with on squadron are amazing. The airplane, as I said before, it did everything pretty well. Yeah. Uh, um, I'm thinking specifically about flying the jet. And because one thing I hear, and um, I, I don't want to, I don't want to guide you in this, but one thing I hear is pilots have told me, aside from the fact of being able to add um, external fuel tanks is just the legs of the CF-18 with like a little bit longer or a little bit more. Oh, uh, uh, I, I guess know. depends if you want to use the piddle pack or not. <laughs> right. Okay. Fair enough. If you don't have an onboard, I don't really have an on bathroom and you can't unstrap and go for, you know, a proper bathroom break. It's like, right. well, if I can have more fuel or more legs, whatever that means, you're probably going to have to use the piddle pack then. And <laughs> right. uh, it's, it's there. Don't get me wrong. It's there, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is a bit of, it is a bit of a pain in the ass. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, and uh, yeah, I guess what didn't you like about it? Flying it. Or... The fact that there was no, there was no bathroom. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> piddle pack. Yeah. The piddle yeah. pack. The piddle yeah. pack for the worst thing to do. No. <laughs> um, yeah, honestly, the airplane itself, uh, I guess you'd probably say some, I may, maybe the power from mm. time to time. Um, you know, most of the time our standard configuration would have a couple of tanks, like a couple of external tanks on it. And by the time you add in, you know, a, a 2000 pounds worth of what well, each tank is like 2000 pounds. Um, so once you throw in that and then the drag and everything from a tank, um, I'd say maybe a little bit more, a few more horses, mm -hmm. uh, under the, under the hood would be great. Mm -hmm. uh, as a new, as a new person from like OTU and stuff like that, it's more than enough horsepower, but after you get your clock cleaned by F-15s and F-16s and stuff, go, man, if I could just have a little bit more horsepower, <laughs> I might have a fighting chance. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Aside from the fact of growing your skills, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right, right. Forget about my skills. It's all about the power. I have no fiddle pack and I have no power. That's why I'm losing this fight. <laughs> That's awesome. I love it. Oh, man. Okay. So now the next uh, major uh, milestone, I guess, in your career is going to England. Uh, you were an exchange uh, pilot with the RAF. Uh, well, I actually, my, my time before that was actually on the Snowbirds. 
Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I guess I'm kind of separating the snowbird till the end because. Okay. Okay. But, yeah. So but, I did snowbird yeah. students and then, yes. Yeah, so my, my tactical mm-hmm. piece, uh, I was fortunate enough to get a exchange position over in the UK on the Hawk T2. Sweet. And as you mentioned, there's more technology in the T2 than, than the Hawk that you have flown in Canada or the, or the British Hawk T1. Correct. Yes. Quite a bit more. Yeah. Uh, Tell me about that just because I'd love to get, I'd love to hear the the core differences between the two. Well, the, the interesting thing. So, I mean, it it does have an upgraded engine. Um, So it's still a Rolls Royce. It's an Ador engine, but it's, you know, a couple more numbers bigger, but um, it has a little bit higher. um, It has like a, it has like surge protection and stuff on it. Oh, okay. Interesting. Um, so, you know, if there's like adverse airflow and stuff coming in the engine, the engine will actually go into its own little uh, preservation mode if it's going to potentially surge and stuff like that. So it'll actually spool itself down, make sure the airflow goes through and then spool it back up. And that's the word I'm looking for. Anyway, whatever that word is, right. uh, stuck somewhere between our conversation. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's uh, so, yeah, it's so they like the engine is bigger. It's got a little bit more power, but then it's also heavier. Um, so mm. performance wise, it's almost exactly the same as our Hawk. Interesting. Um, from like top speeds, um, to all of your G's, like when, how often, and you know, like the weights and stuff, when you can pull maximum G and all that kind of stuff, those, mm-hmm. that's almost identical where it gains a lot more points though, is all the electronic bits that are put into it, which make it, you know, quite a, a, a leap forward, uh, from a capabilities point of view, depending on what you're using it for. Okay. And in, in that context, for people that might not be familiar with the Hawk and what it is used for, yeah. um, how would you describe that? Yeah. So it's, um, so effectively the, the Hawk T2, like the, the brain of the Hawk T2 is data link and people understand what data link is, but you know, effectively it's, you have an airplane it has the ability to talk to another airplane and then it builds a picture and it uses data link in order to build a picture. And mm-hmm. it's a, it's a synthetic, we call it synthetic um, mm-hmm. because it's not technically, well, it's, it's real, but it's building a, a picture based on all of the sensors that's going in, but it's basically being fed by this data link system. Um, all of those electronic features uh, on the T2 are all, provided by that data link. So what it does provide you with though, is it gives you a synthetic radar system, um, which, you know, from a fighter lead in point of view uh, is quite a a nice advancement when you talk about what's the next stage of training when you're trying to get, you know, the next uh, young guns, you know, ready for F-18 or whatever that next future fighter is going to be. so being getting introduced to those kinds of that, that, that next stage of technology is, I think is, is important at that whole uh, downloading training, right? How much, how much training can we download? And the sooner you get introduced to things, does that not help you be able to, you know, um, develop more skill and usefulness for it so that when you are actually, actually using it on the front line, you've got that much more of an ability to, you know, operate that system as we discussed before, right. It's being a systems manager, not necessarily flying the airplane. Right. Um, and so it all feeds off of the data link. And, uh, so you have like a synthetic radar, 
um, that um, built. Now they've they've designed the synthetic radar on the T2 to be a, basically a very similar emulator as uh, for the Typhoon. Okay. Um, so all the little squares and everything are, and the coloring is very similar to the Typhoon because that's their primary aircraft that most of the RAF pilots would go fly. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the data link also allows you to um, build um, things like um, surface threats. So you can build um, SAM, SAM sites and uh, that kind of thing. So you can explore some of the air to ground uh, sequences um, if you end up you know, uh, down low level and you've got your surface to air threats down there. As an IP, I could sit there in the back and literally move things around on the map as this student's live flying and then set off you know, one of his sensors to get him to, you know, to do uh, a reaction or whatever, right, as part of the training. Um, all of that's being provided by the data link. Um, and that's probably the, the biggest nugget that it has uh, from a capability point of view, but it allows you to do a lot of pretty, pretty cool stuff um, that would that you would say is a very good advancement for downloading training from uh, like your OTU, like 410. Mm-hmm. That's super cool because uh, you had mentioned to me that through your time there, there were actually students that you had trained that had gone straight to an F-35 as well. So even though perhaps optimized for the Typhoon, uh, the RAF has has a couple of fighters that they that they operate. And that's kind of neat that that those guys were able to kind of train up on a T-2 and, and go go to an F-35. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they've got that whole capability, I guess, that um, in a way, I mean, it's funny, like when you say that, I think some people, uh, you know, maybe get hung up too much on like, it has to be exactly as per it has to be the same, same, same. And, you know, even just the ability to just talk, you know, you just start introducing the jargon of radar, right? The jargon that goes along with using those sensors is I think it's huge for, you know, for an ab issue student when they start mm-hmm. hearing that verb, the vocabulary and what all that means and how that, you know, builds into what they need to do with an airplane. Just that alone, I think is extremely worthwhile from a, so again, how that's being provided, I think is, it's kind of small potatoes. It's the, that it is being provided. It's being provided by this. That's what's important what that specific piece is mm, could be up for debate. And that's where I think that's why they're successful. And mainly F-35, like the majority of that OTU is going to be probably in a simulator. Um, but they would have heard the jargon. They would have heard that introductory stuff. And now they're just applying it to a new machine, but the jargon is still the same. You're just applying it to a new machine. And I think that's the important part. So awesome. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Very, very interesting. Um, mm-hmm. So, how would you compare the difference between the Royal Canadian Air Force and your experience uh, of being an exchange officer with the Royal Air Force? Um, our training programs are very similar, actually. Uh, similar in our conduct, similar on our development of students. We use the term, they use the term developmental teaching, just like we do as well, uh, where, you know, it's all about fostering your own self-analysis, your own self-critique from that student, right? It's all about that. Um, I know historically the the uh, the RAF uh, has maybe you know built a little bit of a uh, historical problem by being a bit more ruthless and and whatnot. But I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, there's still that 
the historical presence of the Battle of Britain, if you will. You know, as the Battle of Britain, we won the most important air war ever of the of the modern age, and I guess back in the day. So, right, it's kind of cool actually over there because you literally could take off from anywhere and effectively fly anywhere in the UK at 500 feet or whatever you need to, and you'll be under military control. And you could go zipping over downtown London under military control, and no one would bat an eye. That's so awesome. it's almost like the battle, of, like it's almost like the Battle of Britain rules are still invoked to a degree. Don't get me wrong; it's not happening often where guys are raging through downtown London. But <laughs> if they needed sure. to, if yeah. they needed to, it would happen, and it would happen like that, which is pretty cool. That is very cool. That yeah. is very cool. Was there any was there any cultural difference that you kind of saw, like in terms oh, of? Yeah, I still even uh, I've got like I call people mate and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I still yeah. I still have all my jargon, but I was up in Wales as well. So I mean, the cool thing was that, um, you know, my my children actually were going to a school there, and they were they weren't doing full time Welsh, but they were learning Welsh. Um, and that became the, yeah, that became the secret language when they're talking about their parents behind our backs because they pretty much knew and it started getting all kind of, oh, it sounds, it sounds more Viking. I don't know if you've ever heard Welsh, but it sounds more like there's something out of a Viking movie than anything. And you're just, it's pretty, it, but it's, it's just very, it's cool. Like it's just part of that culture. Right. And, um, yeah. Yeah, we uh, we really enjoyed our time over there, um, both uh, both you know from my from my flying and whatnot, but also as a family as well. Uh, I think that's awesome. What a wonderful experience to, to just to not only continue doing what you do professionally, but to do it in a different country and experience that whole uh, a different culture, different people, um, opportunity to perhaps travel during some of your downtime would have been yeah, awesome. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, it was great. Sweet, yeah. sweet. Hey everybody, I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Go Bold, where we've got to hear about Major Parker's career in the Royal Canadian Air Force outside of his time with serving with the world-famous Snowbirds Air Demonstration Team. Please join us for our next episode, where Major Parker, the boss of the 2022 Snowbirds Air Demonstration Team, will share his insight on the team their Tudor jet, and how a show season is planned and executed. And you'll hear a bit of what he has planned for the team this year. You won't want to miss it, so we look forward to seeing you on the next episode of Go Bold. Have a great day, everyone. The views and opinions expressed in this presentation are solely those of the participants. This podcast is copyright and all rights are reserved. No portion may be reproduced or used in any manner without the express written permission of the publisher who can be reached at goboldthepodcast at gmail.com. The music on this podcast is Parasail by Silent Partner.